30 years ago, almost to this day, my mother and father gave their lives for what was then considered to be a very insane notion. The possibility of contacting alien life. Real-life Martians were landing in Grover's Mill. The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension, rated PG. Check newspapers for selected theaters. Resume. Noun. One. A summing up. Summary. Two. A brief written account of personal, educational, and professional qualifications and experience. Come agree to resume has always been a weird deal for me. I can't believe that I started it almost 11 years ago as a solo YouTube series, three years before finally entering the podcasting realm with my best friends. And yet I've only produced 12 total episodes. The idea was just to talk about the comic books I bought in my childhood in real time. But the truth is that it involves a lot of personal excavation of often painful memories for a very private person. I didn't convert the handful of videos into podcasts until five years on, and then took another three years to try to fill in my experiences as a fan before starting to routinely collect comics in the 80s. My most productive period with this show was in 2019, when I got out five episodes on a more or less monthly basis. I got another four out in rapid succession in 2020, at least in part out of avoidance, since I hadn't wanted to put in the work on more involved shows. Cards on the table, after COVID hit, I didn't want to work on any podcasts, but the easier the better. I didn't have to do any coordinating with guests or heavy editing on a show that typically only ran between a quarter and half an hour. I'd even gifted myself a fully scripted episode that August, with the art and everything done. I thought for sure Escape Into the Past would be preferable to a COVID-plagued present. I'd been hot and heavy working on the Marvel Handbook podcast, but a variety of circumstances, including the exceptional coordination and precise editing, triggered a lack of motivation that saw that show go into an ongoing hiatus. I lost interest in our reasonably popular Buck Rogers indexing show, from which this show derives its theme song. Ditto our Briscoe County Junior show. I was creating a personal bubble with my partner, rarely seeing my friends in person, and only while masked outdoors. I didn't want to talk to anyone. I didn't want to have recordings with dead people sitting on my computer. The Spawnometer podcast limps along, but my partner's stated interest isn't matched by tangible effort, and anyway, I find myself drowning in the research needed to keep that program moving along. I could produce and distribute this episode in far less time than it would take to sift through hours of shambolic interviews with Al Gordon or Jerry Ordway, I swiped from other people's blogs and podcasts, to even begin to start looking at the Wildstar property that nobody actually cares about besides them. And from what I can tell, mostly just Al Gordon. On the Amazing Heroes podcast, I sometimes take out my frustration with Spawnometer on a spotlight subject like Dick Tracy or Continuity Comics, along with the odd archive creator interview that I actually conducted myself. In the last couple of years, I also eked out a few episodes of my various solo superhero shows like Diana Prince Wonder Woman and Power of the Atom. I very much need to do another Dawn of the Dead podcast after a year-long hiatus, as I'm finally going to meet much of the cast of my favorite movie this year after a two-year deferral. I've had a lot more success over the past year covering the comics related to another favorite movie with Dark Horse Presents Aliens. We've already done a dozen episodes of that one. I don't believe it either. We still get the Marvel Superheroes podcast out every quarter or so, trying to keep up with new releases, as well as clear large chunks of catalog Marvel media several movies at a time. We also spit a lot of curses during DC specials and generally run off at the mouth on rolled spine. 
At the end of 2021, our podcast host shut down and we moved to Anchor. I decided to finally offer all of our non-explicit shows on their own feed and then allowed it to go cold for two months. I've had some health issues recently that haven't helped, but let's be honest, keeping up a reliable schedule has never been my strong suit. My intention is to get a minimum one clean show on the new four-color rolled spine feed per month. The expectation is that the primary show will be the revived Marvel Handbook. But in the meantime, this resume episode has been scripted for 18 months. I'd really like to reach a point where I can drill down more here to cover a single month of experiences instead of these swaths of time with repetitious recounting of the same handful of titles. I'm anxious to move past material I partially wrote years ago and someday get to a place where I'm buying in a week what fills months at this point in my fandom. I mean, don't you really want me to delve into my complete set of Xenobroods sooner rather than later? August of 1984 was a lackluster, unmemorable month in general. I finally cut loose of the coin and bought my own copy of G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero, number 29. It was a Michael Golden Destro cover, so that had to help. The interior was by Frank Springer, which was quite a contrast. There were so many cool characters and dramatic visuals rendered as dully as possible. But I guess scripter Larry Hama succeeded in conveying the drama well enough for me to overlook the visual blandness. There's a Cobra rally that perfectly demonstrates this. Have you ever had to hold a conversation with a Ku Klux Klansman or a skinhead. I'm from the South and worked retail, so that happens sometimes. Anyway, these are not fascinating, complex people. So you have to wonder where all this passionate devotion to a brotherhood and an ideology comes from. The simple fact is, props help. A great big flag with a bold graphic, often involving a dangerous predatory creature, dramatic torch lighting, the promise of infiltrating and toppling an oppressive regime from within, the monkey brain appeal of just being part of an angry mob, bonded together over your mutual hatred and the capacity for cathartic violence the group affords. Sometimes this fascist populism fuels tyranny. Here it just puts across Cobra in spite of the lame old school drawing style. But even Destro and Firefly can't maintain their terroristic chic while riding around on a Louisiana swamp boat. I keep waiting for them to be chased by an incompetent sheriff scored to a Jerry Reed song. Wait, oh lord, that actually happens in this issue. Well, they chased him on back through the muck and the slime To the back of that swamp where the sun don't shine But the law will never catch a gate of my pen Cause he knows that swamp like the back of his hand I kept putting off buying Kitty Pride and Wolverine number one, probably because Al Milgram inking himself wasn't as palatable as Jim Mooney's inks on Peter Parker. Also, it looked like a drab Kitty Pride domestic drama. I stalled so long that the issue sold out or was pulled by the distributor. Oh well, so much for any sense of youthful completionism. Even Blue Devil number six was a bust, involving Dan fighting aliens in a casino. It was trying too hard to be cute and funny, and at least as a kid, fell short in my eyes. I haven't reread it since. I was irrationally drawn to Marvel movie specials in the days when rewatching a film meant broadcaster bust, so I bought Buckaroo Banzai number one. At this point, the Marvel adaptions were threadbare cash grabs, trying to condense entire movies into just 44 pages. It rarely worked, but at least this one had Mark Texera art. Tex was an early favorite artist of mine, although I wouldn't really begin to recognize his work for another few years. As for the movie itself, I either saw it at the dollar show or on cable. I missed the more comic booky elements at the time, and anyway, it owes more to pulp polymaths like Doc Savage. I streamed on Tubi a few months ago, and I'm more enamored with the movie's franchise material than anything W.D. Richter committed to cellular. 
Lloyd. Honestly, I can die without knowing what the watermelon experiment was all about. I don't think I bought Iceman number one. I never liked Bobby Drake and hopefully just thumbed through this while shaking my head at the 7-Eleven I bought my comics from. The comic sticks out though and would have been par for these weeks of disappointing purchases. Finally, Marvel Super Heroes Secret Wars number eight, where Spider-Man retroactively receives his black costume after having already gotten rid of it in his own comic. These things are all a blur in my mind. About a decade and a half ago, I spent some time with my stepbrother, his partner, and their extremely attractive roommate. She loaned me a copy of the trade, then promptly got booted out of their place and fell out of contact. I tried to get the trade back to her, but was thwarted. I finally sold the thing off cheap at my shop. I tried to read it, but it seemed rather shallow and stupid. and just made me think about the girl I wished I'd gotten to do more than play a bootleg Japanese bust the groove 2 with. It's bad enough when the comic fails to hold up over time, but it's quite another when it recalls unrequited lust and regrets of timidity. Curiously, I ended up becoming addicted to Gilmore Girls in part because Lorelai reminded me of this gal. Maybe if Spider-Man could have talked a bit faster and looked yummier in a sweater, I'd have kept Secret Wars around. What's your preference? Apple? Pear? Wang? Oh, listen, I don't know anything about computers. Nobody does. Miles just bought a computer, and he got more than he bargained for. You talk, you notice. Madeline just moved in upstairs, and she's the girl he's falling for. I can't play that for her. I want to squeeze you, lick you, pucker up, and kiss you. You make her sound like a lemon. But I don't know what love is. You never told me. Did you write that for me? No, well... I mean, did you like it? When Edgar comes between them, things start to get electric. You're taking over my life! For movies, I have the vaguest recollection of seeing electric dreams at somebody's house presumably on cable in 1985. It was one of those computers or magic boxes numbers we all laugh about now, despite turning our homes over to Alexa. The flick was about what would happen if HAL 2000 wanted to get some because the guy who played Harold on Twin Peaks spilled champagne on it. Give me all the rem you got for this wet Asus PC. Revenge of the Nerds also came out that year, and we recorded it off basic television with our own VCR around 1987. I don't know if I've ever seen the uncut version all the way through. It trips me out how much more vulgar it is, and it was hardly classy on UHF. Enough of the TV though. I definitely saw Meatballs Part 2 with my stepsisters at the dollar show. What they lacked for Bill Murray, they in no way made up for with an E.T. parody starring a Tony Danza wannabe and Richard Mulligan. I don't think I hated it or anything, but all I remember is a telekinetic boxing match. And there isn't even a trailer online. That I may have learned that Dork was a phallic reference from this movie. A lot of movies from the summer of 1984 were well represented during a period where we lived in an apartment with free cable included. I don't know what casting director thought that if Elliot from E.T. were to go all Jojo Rabbit in creating an adult male authority figure as an imaginary friend, he'd land on Dabney Coleman as his selection. Coleman was in a dual role as his father though, which makes more sense. The premise of Cloak and Dagger was reminiscent of war games, except instead of a kid from the suburbs accidentally triggering a nuclear missile exchange with Russia, here the kid fascinated by a spy-themed role-playing game actually trips over a case of espionage. This seemed to be on constantly in the months we had cable, and had local notoriety by being shot in San Antonio with two Texan leads and a set piece set in the Alamo. Atari also rebranded their rare Agent X cabinet game into the comparatively ubiquitous movie branding tie-in. Red Dawn had to wait until we got a VCR, but it was a monumental rental. I swear, throughout the 80s, every school child was terrified that we were either all going to die in a nuclear winter like on the generationally traumatic TV movie The Day After, or we were going to get invaded and have to form guerrilla squads out of the kids who weren't cool enough to break into the Brat Pack. That's why we were always watching post-apocalyptic instructional videos like The Road Warrior and Damnation Alley. It was the walking dead of our day. 
That's also why every flea market sold melee weapons and we were all training in the use of Chinese throwing stars and nunchucks. Dreamscape was in that cable rotation somewhere too, but it was so far removed from the mind-warping extremes of brain scan, the fury, altered states, and videodrome that it really doesn't even rate mention in their company. It's funny because it predated A Nightmare on Elm Street by several months, but because it was trying to be an adventure film instead of horror, it lacked the same impact from a dream murderer with blades for fingertips. The dude turning into a serpent was sick though. As previously stated, my stepfather brought a lot more Clint Eastwood into our lives, but I think Tightrope was kinky enough to have to wait for Cable. It's another one of those instances where it might as well have been a Dirty Harry movie, and I basically assumed as much on first viewing, but that's not actually what it was. Detective Block is slightly more woke while simultaneously being more overtly into sadomasochism. So, horny Harry? Dirty horny? Speaking of which, I recorded Bolero off Cable in 1989 for exercise purposes. Not that Bo Derek wasn't well put together, but I didn't even buy her as a virgin back then, when the median age of actors playing high school students was 32. I've never actually seen Chud, but the TV commercials terrorized me as a kid. I never wanted to sleep in the dark and always wanted a radio on to begin with. When we moved into the trailer, my bedroom was on the opposite end from my parents. I'd switched from radio to leaving a TV on, usually set to classic Star Trek. They ran a Chud spot during that, and my getting up after hours got my stepfather so mad he almost forbade me from seeing V The Final Battle midway through the miniseries. Now V was released in May, but Chud didn't come out until August, so maybe I didn't become a V fan until they had a late summer re broadcast? This isn't as perplexing as realizing that I probably didn't see Star Wars on its initial release after all, but it's still a blow to my early fan perceptions. In researching music for August of 1984, I'm becoming keenly aware of the impact my stepsisters had on my sonic exposure. As I believe I've mentioned previously, my mother was a kicker who was into Elvis, and my stepfather also did country, with a lot of 1950s and early 60s pop. I mostly listened to the same stuff they had, aside from whatever broke through via television or movies. My stepsisters came into the picture in 1983, living with us for periods of time, and often coming over for weekend visits. I remember them having a crush on Terry Taylor, so we'd watch the local wrestling matches on TV, and I took a liking to Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Now that there were kids closer to my age around, we would go off and see a break in two or a footloose without parental guidance. Earlier in the series, I struggled a bit to find music that reflected what I was listening to in the time period being covered. Out of the Billboard charts for the first week of August, I know I heard dozens and dozens of singles in the Hot 100 and everything in the top 20. I was becoming increasingly frustrated with tossing through a friend's copies of Uncanny X-Men, but never seemed to get the chance to actually read his copies. In September of 1984, seeing Logan on the cover of Alpha Flight number 17, with art by Phoenix's John Byrne, 
That was too much to resist. It was a nice enough story, flashing back to the team's first appearance. Alpha Flights, I mean, not the X-Men. They were still trying to apprehend the Fugitive Weapon X for the Canadian government, but this telling offered previously unseen perspectives. I also read my brother's copy of Uncanny X-Men number 188 a few years late, but let me tell you, the dire wraiths gave the brood a run for their money in the boss alien ripoff category. The next time some comic skater waxes on about the simple pleasures of monthly action-oriented comics starring manly men, remind them that it took a lot of Frank Springer's grinding out pap to make that happen. G.I. Joe, a real American hero number 30, had the dreadnoughts smashing planes with chainsaws under a bait-and-switch Mike Zek cover. It also was the second straight issue that ended with Destro and Firefly charting a small fishing boat through open waters. I wasn't head over heels for this stuff even when it was only 60 cents, and I was a lot hungrier and easier to please. Having procrastinated too long in the first issue, I made sure to buy Kitty Pride and Wolverine number two instead of letting it slip away. Kitty wasn't as pretty under Al Milgram's pen as she had been under Paul Smith's, but she was crying and running from sumo bodyguards by phasing through floors and stuff. I found that a little more exciting than fighting space crabs, though Wolverine's increased presence was probably the deal maker. Then again, I also purchased X-Men Annual number eight, and that was pretty near all Kitty. I was never a big Steve Aloha fan, even as an inker, but he suited this sort of Patrick Nagel meets Labyrinth space fantasy. On reflection, Chris Claremont was more reliable on these one-off story stories than the endless soap opera of the main series, though I doubt I could have held up interest in this sort of thing as an extended series. Blue Devil number 7 was an odd issue, because Gil Kane never had much facility for whimsy, one of the book's main draws. Still, he drew an intense Blue Devil, and what would have been pedestrian action in other hands, like the destruction of a car Dan was driving, became throwing under Gil's pen. This issue is my introduction to the trickster as a frenemy, and Bolt as a pure bad guy, since I bought number 6 after this issue. In all the years the Flash comics struggled to make Trickster an anti-hero or villain, I figured just let him be the annoyance throwback to a similar time that he was here. It was also nice to see a superhero having a dating adventure without worrying about making excuses to conceal his secret identity. Sharon was game. Trust women, you guys. Marvel Superhero Secret Wars number 9 was good about escalating the threat, as everybody piled on Galactus before they got eaten, but it was still ultimately the itchy and scratchy show. The thing number 19 was a lot better than the last issue I tried, with Ben Grimm not entirely in control of his thing transformations, imperiled by the universal monsters while alone on Beyonder World. Byrne was good at writing this sort of light single-issue story, and Mike Gustavich jazzed up Ron Wilson's pencils with a bit of Neil Adams' flair. I was planning on finishing out 1984 with this episode, but between the preamble and social media, I figure we should save that for next time. It's already written, so hopefully you'll hear it next month instead of in the next presidential term, assuming that nuclear winter I wrote idly about in 2020 doesn't come to pass. The usual very, very, very belated thanks go out to Adriano, Benedict Excelsior 73, Between the Pages, Chris at Bad Books for Beginners, Chris Dunford, Chris Lydon, Comic Book Couples Counseling, Del Dracula, Doc Strange, Dustin Stopher, Ed Moore, Fanholes Podcast, Firestorm Fan, Generation Hicks, I Was Joe Is, who added Good Times, Jeffrey Brown They Them, Jim Fanning, Keith G. Baker, Kenny Crayley Jr., Mike at Send Aliens to Me, Randy Caldwell, Relatively Geeky Podcasting Network, Ryan Daly, who added, I've got that Temple of Doom adaptation, Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, Slangward Scott, Sphinx Magoo, 2020, <laughs> Superbound, who added, Loving that Micronauts number one with that golden cover, Tim Price, the Podcrasher, who added, 
Great Issue of Blue Devil, Tom Beach, Trekker Talk, Warlord Worlds, Wonder Woman Warrior for Peace Podcast, and Xenozoic Xenophiles. Randy Caldwell wrote, I miss songs with nice long intros. Of course, as a DC person, I preferred the Bob Layton issues of Secret Wars to the Mike Zek issues, which seemed somewhat hollow. I think my first exposure to Bob Layton was his inking on JSA stories. Those were real pretty. I associate Zek with covers mostly. Oh, and Craven's Last Hunt. Yeah, that was beautiful. I think his issues of Secret Wars looked a bit rushed. The heroes looked more like early 80s wrestlers rather than bodybuilder superheroes. Other than the odd first issue they so frequently do in Marvel, the bulk of my issues of Iron Man have Bob Layton art. Obviously, I dug his Hercules miniseries. Apparently, digged is not a word. And I'll point out that I know that Jim Shooter was making Mike Zek redraw and redraw his pages to his specifications. I don't know that Shooter dictated in that same fashion to Bob Layton. They seem to have a smoother working relationship, and Layton seemed to be more to Shooter's taste. But my understanding is Mike Zek was basically broken by Secret Wars and the demands placed on him by Shooter. So that's probably why they looked somewhat rushed. Illegal Machine added, absolutely nothing wrong with the Leighton Secret Wars issues. I'm as much a Leighton stan as Frank is for Zek. He's responsible for about 85% of the Iron Man images on Marvel merch nowadays, not seeing a dime for it either. Finally, Kenny Crowley wrote, 1984 was a mixed bag of a year for both DC Comics and Marvel, I thought. Also, it was for DC one year before Christ on Infinite Earths would take place, even though work began on it in late 1981, early 1982. The original Secret Wars, I thought, was a okay Marvel event early on. The best thing to come out of Secret Wars is Spider-Man's new black costume. Searching my mind for some truth to reveal What thoughts are fantasy would never